0: Hi and welcome to Get in the Game with Brian Panish. Today we're joined by superstar trial lawyer Christopher Dolan from San Francisco, also practices in Los Angeles and throughout the state. Chris uh, attended the Boston University for his undergraduate degree. He attended a master's in business at Boston University and attended law school at Georgetown University. Chris, thanks for joining us.
1: Good to be here Brian.
0: Chris, I wanted to talk about your background a little bit. I know you're from the East Coast. How is it that you decided you wanted to be a lawyer, and how did you get to California?
1: Well, the background of becoming a lawyer has to do a lot with the way I grew up. I grew up Irish. Now, you're you're Irish, so you get that. But I grew up in a tough household, and there was a lot of, um, let's just say there was a lot of, well, there was a lot of paternal rivalry, which nowadays they'd call child abuse. And so I was the youngest of a group of, five kids and I got kicked the shit out of me a lot. And so I didn't really have anything to do in terms of my ability to fight back except learn how to use my brain and use my mouth. So over time that became my tool that became my weapon. It's become my trade. And so I learned how to both advocate for myself and, um, and over time just became a way of life. So I decided that I was going to become a lawyer and continue to fight against The people that tend to take advantage of people smaller than them are less strong.
0: Now, Chris, I know and I I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I heard an interesting story years ago, and I always recall it, about your decision how you wanted to go to Georgetown and how it wasn't such an easy deal for you to get to Georgetown (laughs) Hospital. Tell, Tell our listeners about that.
1: So, well, I graduated in the bottom fifth quintile of my high school class. Uh, Let's just get, so I turned 18 on the same day we graduated, and that's when the drinking age was back then. So I got caught on stage drinking beer, and the the principal threatened to withhold my diploma. And I looked at him, I said, do you really want me here for another year? And he signed it and pushed me out the door. So I was a, a landscaper and a tree surgeon. And that's what I was doing. And I suddenly realized as I was working around all these big, beautiful homes, and these guys had beautiful cars, beautiful wives, and they couldn't figure out how to turn on the water faucet. And they all said university is something on them. So I decided I had to get educated. As far as Georgetown goes, uh, I was rejected from Georgetown Law School twice. Uh, The first time I'd finished my master's degree in business, I was top of my class. I got this letter that says, you know, sorry, we regret we can't can't give you a position. And then uh, BU sent me a letter saying the same thing, but then it said, and uh, you know you have an inconsistency between your transcript and yourself, sort of your story. And it says, you're living in, in Europe, but you're failing out of all these classes here in, in Boston, they sent me the transcript, and they put some other kids' grades on my transcript. So he, he'd failed out of all the classes I'd gotten A's in, and I got rejected on that basis. So the next year I applied to Georgetown again, and I was living in London um, and they, they said, you know, we're going on a preferred rate list. And they said, sorry, we don't have a place. And I wrote on the bottom of the letter, it ain't over until the fat lady sings. And I got on a plane and I flew back to the United States, took a train from Penn Station down to Georgetown, knocked on the door of the dean of admissions. I said, hi, I'm Chris And he goes, don't you live in England? I said, yeah, you don't need to call the cops. I just came here to introduce myself because I'm going to go to school here. I'm convinced of that. I need to know what you need to be convinced of. I said, you want me to sit here and answer your phone for a year? I will answer your phone for a year. You want me to go down and paint the basement for a year? I'll paint the basement. for you. And he just laughed. And uh, I went back to get ready to go back to Europe. And I got a phone call. And the, the assistant for him said, you know, the dean was rather, shall we say, um, he found it novel. And he found a position for you in the evening division, which was four years. And I said, God bless you. And then she called me back and she said, you got a place in the day division because he was testing me. Would I go for four years? And then I graduated with high honors and gave the graduation speech. So that's how I got myself into Georgetown, which is the same way that I practice law is that I don't give up until somebody tells me absolutely. Not.
0: Well, I think what that's called, Chris, is grit, perseverance yeah. and never give up attitude, which has served you well as a plaintiff lawyer. How did you get to California and get to start doing what you're doing?
1: So when I was in Georgetown, I was uh, one of maybe one people who wanted to be a plaintiff's lawyer. I mean, they're all corporate lawyers, government lawyers. And I remember there was this, this Professor Dash who said uh, he was calling ambulance chasers. He kept saying ambulance chasers. So I raised my hand, I said, Professor, are you talking about those good people that have given us like shatterproof glass and seat belts and, and probably made that artificial hip that you're wearing safe for you? I said, because I call those people heroes. And I said, that'd be like me saying those who can't teach. And he said, oh, what's your name? And I said, Dolan. <laughs> that was the only class I got less than a, a B plus in, but it was worth it. So I, I went to work for a summer clerk for a guy in Maine, his name was um, Gary Goldberg, he Was supposed to be the best on the East Coast, but he got MS. And so I decided, you know what? I'm gonna go find a place in my criteria with a, within three hours of good skiing, near the water and with great motorcycling trails and that's how i found myself in san francisco very important criteria
0: so when you started out what did you do
1: so i started out working for a firm called robbins kaplan miller and serisi that's out of minnesota and i was in their san francisco office supposed to help set up a plaintiff's practice there because they did a lot of work out of minneapolis they did some of the original mass tort work and i got hired by a woman to uh to work for her as her associate in California, but she went out on maternity leave and never came back. So I started building a plaintiff's practice there on my own, um, got to know Mike Cerisi, a great guy who was back in Minneapolis, worked on a breast implant cases, and then realized that my boss in, in San Francisco hated plaintiff's lawyers. He thought it was a dirty business and he didn't want folks in his lobby who were injured because he, he was an insurance coverage and defense guy. So I realized that I was—I uh, needed to leave that firm when I found myself pissing in his plan at two o'clock in the morning, uh, realizing that, that, that perhaps that was a sign I should go.
0: And were you nervous about it, starting your own firm?
1: You know, I, I got to say no. Um, you know, you get to a point in your life, it's just like trying a case, right? You're at the beginning of the case, and it's just time to go. I mean, your, your program's called Get In The Game, Right. So you get to that point where you just make the decision to go. And I knew at that point that if I, I succeeded or I failed, it was on me. And I was okay with that.
0: And well, how long ago did you start your own firm?
1: In, uh, Jesus, 1995, with $5,000, bucks, 2 PS2s, a coaxial cable that ran between them that some of your listeners are going to have to go look up, and uh, a secretary, I said, I could pay two months of your salary.
0: And how many lawyers you have now?
1: Jesus, I think we're about 17 lawyers with offices in San Francisco, Oakland, Marin, and Los Angeles. It keeps right. springing up on me like weeds, Brian, you know?
0: That's okay. You know, you're busy, you're doing great work. So let's talk a little bit about one case that, that to me in following your career just sticks out and it really wasn't a big win for you. But it, it again, exemplifies what I see and what I look for in great trial lawyers is that grit. And that was a case involving the child named McMath. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that and the courage and what it took to, to see that case all the way through?
1: Jai McMath was a 12-year-old black girl in Oakland who went in for a tonsillectomy and an uvulectomy. And she um, went into surgery, and right before she went into surgery, she told her mom, Mom, I'm afraid I'm not going to wake up. And her mom said to her, Jai, honey, you're going to be fine. Jahai came out of surgery. She was in the, in the recovery room, and she started bleeding, and she started bleeding through her mouth, and they said, hey, just use this to dab away the blood, and then they gave her an emesis basin as the blood continued to flow, and they gave her rags that were soaked in blood, and finally suction, and, and she'd lost liters of blood, and her mother panicked and called her mother, who was a nurse. Her mother got down to Children's Hospital in Oakland and said, get me a goddamn doctor. And then Jahai went into cardiac arrest from a loss of blood volume. I didn't know this family. I just finished a pro bono civil rights trial for against the San Francisco sheriff for tearing off the weaves of transgender women and pulling out their hair. I got home, I said to my wife, I, go, I ain't gonna do any more pro bono work for a while. And I got this call at 10.30 at night and it's this guy going, we need to call the governor. We need, we, need to, we need to get into court before 8.30 in the morning. I'm like, hey, hang on. I don't know who you are. How'd you get my number? He goes, Paul Kiesel. <laughs> Somehow Kiesel passed on my number to uh, Omari, who was her uncle. And he said, don't you know what's happening? I said, no, I don't know what's happening. He said, turn on your TV. And I turn on the news and there's a guy on the phone. He goes, you see the guy on the phone? He goes, that's me. They're going to kill my niece tomorrow morning at 8.30 in the morning. They're going to unplug her. And I said, Well, you know, hold on here now. Um, just stand by the phone. I'm going to write you a letter. And I wrote a cease and desist letter because, see, there is no brain death law before this happened. There is no mode to get an injunction. So I filed a cease and desist letter. The mother was meeting with the hospital the next day. She said, Can you come down? I said, Yes. Yeah. She goes, What are you going to charge me? And I said, Nothing. She goes, Put it in writing. I wrote it on a piece of paper. I said, I'm not going to charge you a penny, and we went into this just tremendous legal battle because the doctors said they didn't need parental consent to remove a ventilator. They said that it was entirely a medical decision, and under the law, under the welfare institutions code section, uh, there's a right to a second opinion. And so I used that, got an injunction, and we made new law. The parents have a right to contest the removal of a ventilator. I mean, it was a slugfest. I was in court every day. Uh, from December 12th through January 10th, when we flew her out of there to a a hospital back in New Jersey. And there were two stages of execution. I can only describe them that way. There was a clock ticking down to five o'clock in the afternoon where they were going to remove that ventilator. So I went to federal court and I sought an injunction and filed a case in federal court as well, violation of their First Amendment rights and 14th Amendment rights and rights to privacy. So we staved off these, these two injunctions and the mother was, that they, they moved everybody out of the hospital and she was sitting there alone watching that clock pick down. I called her at 4.52 and I said, she's not going to die. And so we kept Jahai alive and they said, Jahai's going to die no matter what you do. Within four days, she'll be dead. They put it in a signed declaration. They were withholding care. They wanted her dead because with Micra, It was much cheaper for them to have her dead than to have her alive. And I'm clearly convinced they wanted this girl dead. So ultimately, we worked with a a charity and found a hospital in New Jersey where there's a religious exemption to brain death based primarily on the Jewish law of of the spirit flowing through the blood. And the hospital agreed to accept her. So I plopped down my Amex card, got a jet, and I flew her to New Jersey where she was in intensive care for months, and then she lived for four and a half years. Wow. She said she'd be dead in four days, and she could move her thumb on command, and one of the things I sent yeah. to the judge was a, a video of her holding a tennis ball, and her mother saying, Jahai, what's the finger mama tells you you can never use? What's that finger you can't use? And then she moves her middle finger, and I sent it to the judge. I said, judge, if you can do that. But the defendants... They were saying, look, it's, it's a race judicata. A judge found her dead, determined to be legally brain dead. In my case was trying to undo a death determination and to keep her alive. Sadly, she died before we could get her repatriated to California. Um, but it was, a, it was a case, Brian, you said I didn't make money off it. I spent $250,000 of my own money on it. Because right. what it came down to was a, a question of my own fundamental beliefs. It's Christmas time. So I'm thinking, all right, baby Jesus raises people from the dead, miracle worker, why not for this black girl in Oakland? So I went all in. I mean, I went all in.
0: Uh, Isn't that what you have to do in all your cases?
1: You got to go all in. I mean, really, what's the option? If you're going to do this halftime, go work at Burger King.
0: So, Chris, you, you 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 just recently had a large verdict here in Los Angeles, and you've had verdicts throughout the state. But part of what you do is you've been involved in trial organizations. You've been the president of the Consumer Attorneys of California. You spent many years lobbying, trying to make the law better. Why is that important for younger lawyers to get involved in organizations like the Consumer Attorneys of California?
1: So the law that we benefit from now didn't exist before people came along like us who made the law. I mean, you look back at bad faith law, UC Chernoff. You look back at product liability law, You see some of our elder statesmen, you look back at how the law got to where we are, it's because people sacrificed their time and their energy to make not just a difference in one case, but to make law that would affect all cases in the future. So in my office, we've got a criteria, very severe criteria as to what kind of case I can accept. I know, Brian, with you, it's gotta be a $20 billion insurance policy an old lady on her way to church run over by a drunk garbage collector. For me, things are, it's got to have one of the three Ps. It's got to make me a profit, change a policy, or piss me off. And so those are my criteria. And I do a lot of policy work. Um, Why is it so important for people who do this who are young? Let's talk about Uber. When Uber came on the scene, I had the first wrongful death case against Uber in San Francisco. 13-year-old girl
0: run over. Let's talk about that. So historically, Uber has been playing games with their insurance, but they say, well, that That driver is an independent contractor, so you're not going to get us liable unless you can show some type of additional liability. How do you deal with that, or how have you dealt with that?
1: Well, primarily on the first wrongful death case, I took a novel approach and I sued them for a defective product, which was their app itself, because the app required that the driver interface with it by tapping on it and to indicate that it was accepting a ride, and at that point, it was unlawful in the state of California to instant message in any way, which included any message. And that was an instant message. So I sued them for strict product liability, which they didn't quite understand. But they don't know exactly how we think now, do they? No. So that kind of made him nervous. And then I was going under the, you know, the Borello test for what's, a, what's an employee back at that time. Before we had the, the new law come along recently. And I just started proving that they regulated the the dress, the hours, that they could turn them on, turn them off, um, give them their ratings and how much they got paid. And so what we did is we advanced the case forward. I also got the parents. They agreed with me that if I took this case, that they'd go to Sacramento. And we had a, a bill through the Consumer Attorneys of California drafted, which required that Uber have a million dollars worth of insurance uh, during two periods, which is when they're on their way to pick somebody up or they got somebody in the car. And then they have to have a, a, a policy, which is basically a two hundred fifty $300,000 policy in period one, where they're just driving around. Now we did that strategically. while Uber was still not organized. They didn't have lobbyists. There was one shot to do that bill and we did it. And once we got that thing on the, on the floor, they spent $500,000 a month in lobbyists. And we had CAOC behind us. I was in Sacramento every day negotiating that bill right down to before Governor Brown signed it. And he reduced that first million because the taxi drivers in LA, they only have to carry 100, 300. So it was the taxi drivers in LA that pulled that bill down. So ironically, you're safer in an Uber now than you are in a taxi. but as a, result- I, I, maybe, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> as a result of that, that changed the law nationwide. So when I look back and when you look back, you can look at how you've changed products, you've changed roads. Whenever I go down into the subway and I see those gates that are between the cars, I think of you. Because I remember that case you had where the fellow the fellow walked in between them. So when you look back in, in a career where I'm at now, I'm looking back and I'm looking at some of the legacy work that we do. And that's that's very gratifying. Uh,
0: okay, speaking of that, Chris, I know you had a tremendous verdict in an employment case. Uh, I think it was a 60, <laughs> 60 some million in a, in a racial and ethical or ethnic discrimination. Can you tell us a little bit about that case? I know you're proud of that.
1: So that I mean, so as you're going to gather from some of this, I take on some <clears throat> crazy cases. You know. Uh, this one was after 9-11. There were these two Lebanese-American guys who were hard-working FedEx ground employees. And they came to me and they said, hey, look, they're calling us, and I don't know what you can and can't say on this thing, but I'm just going to use the words they told me. They were calling them sand niggers, camel jockeys, towel heads. Uh, they were calling them unibombers. And they were mercilessly harassing these people. They used to block their trucks in. They'd mix up their loads. And the It was all this one corn-fed guy out of Oregon who was just abusing these guys. They'd say, hey, you were Christmas because you don't believe in Christ. They were actually Lebanese Christians. And so they went to the ACLU. They went to the, the everybody. They went to the Arab Anti-Defamation League, the NAACP. They went to everybody. And they all said, listen, it's after 9-11. Nobody's going to care. So they came into to me. And this was back in the day of the pager. And they showed me the pagers. And I said, this isn't right. So I took the case. I think we we worked on it for about four to five years against FedEx. FedEx said that these guys weren't employees, they were contractors, and therefore there was an NLRB decision that came down, the IRS, and so the judge said they're contractors. And that made the law went into effect that you can't retaliate against or harass contractors 21 days before the guy who was causing the problem left. So I had 21 days of legal harassment. And I said to the judge, Judge, all this previous stuff needs to come in. And they said, no, Your Honor, it shouldn't come in. I said, Your Honor, if you've been whipping a man for 18 lashes and you whip him and it becomes illegal for two more lashes, are you telling me that those two more lashes are just the first two or are they the ones that have been built upon what's happened before? The judge goes, yeah, I'm with you. (laughs) So uh, uh, we we proved that they were been they lied flat out lied to the jury and we proved it and the interesting thing is my my guys are dressed in their FedEx uniforms they go out and deliver in the morning they come to court and then they'd sit at the table and they talk like two old ladies in Arabic and I'm like Jesus man just you're sitting right next to the jury and you're going off in Arabic and just then they go out at lunch they deliver their packages and they come back they just be arguing each other in Arabic we didn't have $1 in economic loss. I didn't ask for a dollar in economic loss. I had no psychological visit. I had two people that told their story on that stand. And when I, um, I had an Afghani uh, worker for the government who couldn't tell me what he did. And I had a woman on that panel whose son was in Iraq. And I left her there because I figured she'd know what we were fighting for. So at the end of the case, I, I submitted to the jury and I said, you know, talked about how we think that we're this country based upon equality and how we really aren't and how we're still struggling to get there. And how these guys were the first ones under this new law and how the last time we were at war with an identifiable population, we locked them up in horse stables, the Japanese in our country. And so I said, what kind of America do you wanna be? And I asked him for two and a half million, at least two and a half million for each of my clients in emotional distress to damages and a finding of punitive damages. They came back an hour later. I thought, oh, God, I'm screwed. They come back and they gave him five million bucks each. They doubled it. I'm like, Me twice what I asked them for in a finding of punitive damages. And so we come back and said, John, let's move on with the punitive damages phase. He goes, yeah, we're going to take a week off. And he said, He said, you got a freight train out of control. So we come back and what I did was I had a punitive damage finding against the individual and the company. So I called the lawyer and I said, hey, who represents the individual now that he's got a punitive damage finding? And he goes, well, I do. What, what, is, what do you want? I said, no, I got to talk to his lawyer. He goes, it's me. And I said, okay, this is a little uncomfortable. I need to talk to you about getting your client's assignment to his right to a malpractice case against you for not providing a separate counsel. And I go, so uh, what do you say about that? He hung up. And the next time we went back into court, they had 10 new lawyers from Howard Rice of and Myers, and he got conflicted out. And they brought in this guy named Robert Spotswood. I don't know if you know him. He's from a- Alabama. He came in and said, ladies and gentlemen, jury, you don't give FedEx a black eye. You don't give them beat down now. It's a good company. So they're listening to that. And I walk up, and I lean on the jury box, and I go, I'm just a simple country lawyer. And they all burst out laughing. Um, and so they ended up, I, I said, I do this argument 1% for justice. And they were a 20, $2.47 billion company. And I said, so give me twenty four point seven million for each of them in punitive damages. They rounded it up to twenty-five. I like this jury. I said, Are you folks available next week?
0: You bottled them and brought them every case. And for that, for our listeners to know, Chris was named California Lawyer of the Year for that pioneering groundbreaking case and many other cases. Chris, we're out of time. So much more to talk to you about. I need to get you back. I know you're so busy, but we really appreciate having you spend some time and away from your busy schedule and helping so many clients. And thank you so much for
1: being here. Thanks a lot, Brian. Thanks for all you do.
0: Thank you. Appreciate it, Chris.